Hi, this is Alice. On the northern end of Martha's Vineyard, about a block from the ocean, there's a tiny historic burial ground, West Chop Cemetery. You'll find 18th and 19th century seafarers buried there, as you'd expect, but you will also find the gravestones of three renowned American chroniclers who left their mark on the 20th and 21st centuries, Mike Wallace, Art Buchwald, and William Styron, one a newsman, one a humorist, and one a novelist. They were best friends who shared many of life's joys, but also got each other through deep depressions. In fact, they referred to themselves as the Blues Brothers. All of them eventually spoke or wrote publicly about their struggles with the disease, and they helped to destigmatize it. They decided on one rainy walk to the cemetery that they should be buried there to stay together. Now they lie shouting distance from one another, and their voices still reverberate through American life. The Academy of Achievement has interviews with both Mike Wallace and Art Buchwald in its archive. Their life stories and their careers were very different, but we're confident they would have loved sharing this episode. This is What It Takes, a podcast about passion, vision, and perseverance from the Academy of Achievement. I'm Alice Winkler. Adame, this child is gifted. And I heard that enough that I started to believe it. If you have the opportunity, not a perfect opportunity, and you don't take it, you may never have another chance. It all was so clear. It, it was just like the picture started to form itself. There was no way in which a lie could prevail over the truth. Darkness over light, death over life. Every day I wake up and decide, today I'm going to love my life. Decide. decide. My advice is, if they're going to break your leg once when you go in that place, stay out of there. <laughs> and then along come these differential experiences that you don't look for, you don't plan for, but boy, you better not miss them. Since I started us off this episode at the West Chop Cemetery, our first stop will be at the gravestone of Mike Wallace. There are only three words written below his name, tough but fair. Here he is interviewing Iran's first supreme leader, the Ayatollah Khomeini, soon after 52 Americans were taken hostage. Imam President Sadat of Egypt, a devoutly religious man, a Muslim, says that what you are doing now is, quote, a disgrace to Islam. And he calls you, Imam, forgive me, his words, not mine, a lunatic. Mike Wallace was the co-host of the most respected and popular television news magazine ever, 60 Minutes, from its creation in 1968 until he retired in 2008. And he was a television interviewer like no other who'd come before. He pulled no punches, never hesitated to confront his guest with a question that would make people watching at home squirm in their seats. Joseph Coors, the beer tycoon, once quipped that the foremost dreaded words in the English language were, Mike Wallace is here. Wallace told the Academy of Achievement he found that flattering. It's flattering in the sense that, hey, tell the truth. That's what it says. Because th this guy and his team, 
steam is very, very important, uh, probably has the goods on you, probably knows what a good deal of what you don't want them to know, so play straight with them. Tell the truth. And I cannot tell you how many people, as a result, decided to tell the truth. Mike Wallace got to the truth, whether the person in the hot seat answered honestly or not, with his questions and a raised eyebrow. In 2002, five years before his death, Gail Eichenthal had the daunting task of interviewing the master of the interview for the Academy of Achievement. Wallace was gracious, charming, and not so tough on the other side of the mic. He started by describing what Brookline, Massachusetts was like when he was growing up there in the 1920s and was still known by his birth name, Myron. You were either Jewish or Irish. One of my claims to fame is the fact that Jack Kennedy was born five doors away from me, about a year before me, and we went to grammar school together for a very short time before Joe Kennedy made all his money and and uh, moved up and on, and the Wallaces stayed behind. Mike Wallace was one of the best prepared interviewers of all time. He and his producers did inordinate amounts of research. It's what gave him such credibility with his audience and his guests, even the ones he raked over the coals. Because of that, you might assume he'd been top of his class in school. Not the case. Myron Wallace was a good student. You know, not a superb student, but a good student. And uh, I, I really was. I, I was never an A student. Uh-uh. I was a B or a B minus, which was quite comfortable. Didn't keep me from getting into the college that I wanted to get into. And uh, I guess I was interested in other things. I used to play the fiddle. And I was the concertmaster in the high school orchestra and, and uh, was captain of the tennis team and ran the half mile and a gentleman's B minus. Occasionally difficult in a mischievous kind of way, independent, a bit of a pain in the back, not to his friends but to his family. I was, you know, picked up for shoplifting at the nickel and dime, the five and ten cent store, only a half dozen times. His parents were immigrants from Eastern Europe. His dad, for a time, a grocer. As a matter of fact, he went bust as a grocer. There were, Frank Wallace and Sons was the name of his company, and he was one of the original wholesale grocers and and stores small chains of grocery stores. He was the originator of one of them. But he was a, it was a very modest, comparatively modest operation. And uh, I, I remember it's a, it's a story in the, in the family, but, but I'm not sure about all of the specifics. He and a couple of pals got hold of the ginger market at the end of the First World War and bought a bunch of ships and went to Jamaica and got some, a lot of Jamaica ginger and it was being sent over to the British Isles 
and the sh ships went down in an Atlantic storm and it was insufficiently insured as a result of which he went broke. But the kind of guy that he was, he absolutely insisted that he would not declare bankruptcy. He would pay off his debts, which eventually he did. He was that kind of a fellow. He was an immigrant whose name was Friedel Wallach when he came from the old country and when he arrived in Ellis Island, uh, they wrote down Wallace, but Friedel changed into Frank. He was 16 years old at the time. And uh, then he had a half-sister in Boston who had preceded him to the United States. And, and some of this I know only for the reason that I, I did a profile of Gordon B. Hinckley, who was the president of the Mormon Church. And as you know, the Mormons like to do <laughs> archaeological, genealogical histories of people. And when I was doing the profile of uh, Gordon Hinckley, he sent his operatives to Ukraine. And suddenly I had a gift of a loose leaf notebook, yay big, with all of the history of the, my family, or his family really, back for three or four generations, including the manifest of the ship that he came over on. A generation after Friedel became Frank, Myron became Mike, under completely different circumstances, of course. It happened soon after he'd come out of the Navy as a communications officer during World War II and moved to Chicago to pursue a career in broadcasting. Somebody wanted to do a program called The Love of Mike. They used to call me Mike. That was my nickname. And I liked Mike, so discarded Myron and, and kept Mike. So it's been 60 years or thereabouts. But actually, his radio dreams had begun a few years earlier, before his service in the Navy, when he was still a student at the University of Michigan and still known as Myron. He worked part-time as a radio announcer, making $20 a month for a station in Grand Rapids. Woodwash, W-O-D-W-A-S-H. It was owned by a laundry and a furniture company. I think it was wash until noon and wood until midnight or something of that sort. And it was a part of the Michigan radio network back then. And that gave me an opportunity truly to do, you could do everything in the world. You could do news and you could do the sports, not play-by-play, -play, but color. And when people talk to me about what they should do, that's the way, even today, I think, that some young individual who wants to go into broadcasting should start. Start, first of all, Forget about communication school or journalism school to begin with. You want to go to journalism school, fine. Wait until you've you're finished college and had a good uh, LSNA background, literature, science, and the arts background. Know your economics, know your history, know your political science, write. And then uh, you can learn your trade, so to speak, in television or radio simply by doing, starting out as an intern and learning how to do everything, but you've got to do that in a small market so that you have an opportunity to be bad before you're good and nobody's going to throw you out of a job. Were you ever bad? I was a novice, of course. You learn as you go. The first time Mike Wallace appeared on a national broadcast, 
he was a little out of his element. This was also during his senior year at Michigan in 1939. The show was called Information Please, a very popular comedic radio quiz show. He appeared alongside the regular panel of three very celebrated and witty guests, including New York Post columnist Franklin P. Adams and pianist and composer Oscar Levant. Lucky for us, there's a recording of it. Our fourth man tonight, ladies and gentlemen, is a mere beardless boy, a student at the University of Michigan, selected by his university to represent the spirit of youth on our program. We're glad to welcome 21-year-old Myron Wallace. And Myron, you don't mind if I call you Myron, do you? I hope that at 9 p.m. you won't look 20 years older than you do now. Now, the first question, coming in from Mr. Swift Adams of Rochester, New York, involves the use of alibi. Suppose you're stopped by a policeman for speeding. What do you say? Uh, Myron. Oh, the, the hospital, your wife. My that wife? Sort of thing. <laughs> Anybody's wife. Anybody's wife? No, that's even worse. That's even worse. You generally pick a wife and stick to it. Yes, that would be one alibi. Did you have another one? That trial by fire could have sent Myron Wallace running, but instead it may have set him on the path to utter fearlessness. He would eventually face off on television with hundreds of the most famous celebrities of the 20th century, as well as heads of state, newsmakers, and scoundrels. But, and this is music to my audio producer's ears, it all began with radio. Radio was the first time when I hit the University of Michigan and I began, I found that I had an interesting delivery, a reasonably attractive voice. Uh, I didn't have to worry about what I looked like. Um, The mind's eye in radio, for the listener, is so much more vivid than anything that you can put on the screen, at least that's what I believed then. So I wasn't trapped by radio, I I was trapped because I figured that I probably would never make it in television because cosmetically, perhaps, I wasn't sufficiently interesting looking or pleasant looking. But no, radio was, was, was wonderful to work in radio. Was there ever any other career that you considered? Or you consider, uh... well, growing up, I thought that I was going to be a, uh, probably a lawyer. And then I thought maybe I would be an English teacher. And then one day at Ann Arbor at the University of Michigan, I walked into, I guess it was my sophomore year there, I walked into the radio station operation there. It wasn't really a station. And I, and I was hooked. I suddenly realized that was going to be my metier. And uh, I didn't know how I was going to make it, but I knew damn well I was going to be, and all I wanted to be was a radio announcer. That was it. I could rip and read the news. I could announce a soap opera. I wound up doing Road of Life, the story of Dr. Jim Brent and the Guiding Light, and uh, read a hell of a commercial. And now, Myron Wallace. Summer days are recreation days, days when we like to be lazy and enjoy ourselves. And these summer days, one way that you can always be sure of real relaxation and enjoyment at work, at home, anytime, anywhere, is by treating yourself to the delightful taste of the big new 10-cent Mars bar. In each bite of this luscious new candy bar, 
you'll enjoy the rare flavor combination of an extra thick pure milk chocolate coating heaped high and packed with crunchy fresh whole toasted almonds all over a soft snow white nougat center that is creamy rich and smooth together the milk chocolate crisp almonds and soft nougat make every bite of the big new mars bar a taste of candy at its finest for the finest quality candy bar of them all just try a mars bar That ad was for a radio drama called Curtain Time. Wallace also worked announcing and reading commercials on the Green Hornet and sometimes the Lone Ranger. But after he returned from the Navy, he began to feel that reading other people's words, whether written for ads or for news, was not going to be satisfying enough to sustain him. And he began the transition to journalism. But there was that one appearance he made as a stage actor. I did one play on Broadway, but that came considerably later. By that time, I had been to Chicago, uh, out of the Navy, back to Chicago, came to New York in 1951, and have been there since. And in 55, I guess it was, uh, I had been covering in a, as a newsman uh, the theater to a certain degree, and I was offered the opportunity by Abe Burroughs, who was directing this particular play, famed director Burroughs, uh, in a play by Harry Kernitz called Reclining Figure, and I got to play the idealistic young art dealer, the juvenile lead. <laughs> and I was still, I guess, in my, probably, you know, in my late 20s, early 30s. We ran, I guess, about 100 performances. But that was enough to make me understand that I didn't want to be an actor. Why not? Because it's a bore. The, uh, at least for me, I mean, it was a, the repetition. If, if you play as I did on that particular year, um, if you play a matinee and evening performance on Christmas and New Year's, and this was late in the run, to a house of 100 or 200 people in a theater that seats 1,000, you begin to understand that is a bore, and that's not the way, or at least I understood that I didn't want to spend my life that way. But it's interesting because you've been, um, many people have referred to the theatricality of your uh, of your work on 60 Minutes, the drama that is associated with your work. Mm -hmm. And um, so there would seem to be some connection there between the fact that you actually performed professionally as an actor, narrating radio shows, mm -hmm. and, and bring a, s a terrific sense of drama to, to the news. I think, well, I would hope that, that the drama is an interesting way to take charge of the tube in, as far as television is concerned, and I'm sure that the performance aspects that I learned in various other chores prior to becoming to going into news full time um, was very very important. But one, in order to make people want to watch, and as I say, to take charge of the screen, uh, you you must know. There are some people who are interesting on camera, and some people who are not. 
and I didn't have, for instance, I did not particularly have an anchorman's mien. Uh, I wanted to carve out something interesting in the way of my of what I'm going to do on television, and so I decided, well, why don't, why don't you why don't you study, think, research, and and do not the pablum of of ordinary interviews. What did what did you write? What did you sing? When did you do this? And so forth. But rather go into the into the psyche and into the gut of the interviewee, uh, and and the interviewee likes to feel comfortable and challenged sometimes if he's an interesting or she's an interesting person uh, by the research that has been done ahead of time by the interviewer and th strangely that had never been done we started when I say never been done I'm sure it had been done but I mean for, for television we were the first to do it back in 1956 with a program called Nightbeat a local station in uh, New York and 11 o'clock at night and people's thresholds were down for the kind of questions that we were asking and New York likes something, likes to discover something new and this was new and people wanted to come on and wrestle with me and wanted to be surprised and wanted to be challenged with difficult, sometimes abrasive, sometimes skeptical questions. That's how that role grew. Take a listen to Mike Wallace on Nightbeat in 1957, interviewing Thurgood Marshall, then the chief counsel of the NAACP and the legal architect of the civil rights movement. If you watch excerpts of the program, you can see both men smoking their cigarettes as they talk. Oh, the glorious 50s. Let's turn now to some criticisms of the NAACP. There are plenty. Well. I'd like to read an excerpt from an open letter to the North, written by Nobel Prize winner William Faulkner, Life Magazine, March 5, 1956. Mr. Faulkner says, I would say to the NAACP and all the organizations who would compel immediate and unconditional integration, go slow now. Stop now for a time, a moment. You have the power now. You can afford to withhold for a moment the use of it as a force. Give the white Southerner a space to get his breath to see that he faces an obsolescence in his own land which only he can cure. A moral condition which not only must be cured, but a psychological condition which has got to be cured if the white southerner is to have any peace. Now I tried to read it with the feeling, or some of the feeling that I'm <laughs> sure that Mr. Faulkner had when he, when he uh, wrote it. How do you feel about what William Faulkner says there? Well, in the first place, Mr. Faulkner is not original at all. The uh, newspapers in Virginia have suggested that the NACP go fishing for a reasonable time, and it's the real fallacy in Mr. Faulkner's reasoning is that this is something new. Desegregation has been coming about over a period of 20 or more years. When Mr. Faulkner or anyone else says, wait, the, you must bear in mind that Negroes in this country have been waiting since 1863 when the Emancipation Proclamation was put forth. We've been waiting since the 14th Amendment was adopted. As a matter of fact, I would say that uh, the NACP's more reasonable criticism is that we're moving too slow.
Everybody, everybody, a lot of people in New York were fascinated by the fact that somebody was finally asking questions of some substance and, and unexpected questions. One back then would never talk on air to a homosexual. I mean, it just would be unheard of. But we did, those who were willing to come out of the closet and talk about it, or somebody who was addicted to drugs. I mean, it sounds, it's difficult to believe now. And it wasn't my idea, it was my colleague of mine by the name of Ted Yates, with whom I worked for a long time, I said, let's really go after some of these people in an interesting way, make them think, make them react. And they did. From Nightbeat, Mike Wallace went on to host another program called The Mike Wallace Interview, and he managed to up his income by doing ads for Parliament cigarettes and hosting more shows that were more on the entertainment end of the spectrum. But an awful and painful episode in his life, the death of his young son, caused him to change course. What happened was that my son Peter, then 19, had taken the summer, his junior year at Yale, taken the summer off, gone to Grenoble to, in France to summer school, and then he was going to meet some of his pals at a youth hostel in Greece and uh, just hang out with his pals for a while. And we didn't hear and didn't hear and didn't hear, which was unusual. I mean, not that he wrote daily, but he would re write every week and suddenly nothing. So finally, I uh, decided I'm going to go find out what has happened. And I found out he had fallen off a cliff and nobody knew. The people at the hostel, the youth hostel, uh, knew that because we, we went there to find out what had happened and there was his luggage and so forth. And it turned out that he had, there was a monastery in which couple of nuns were living and uh, he was a he was obviously a fine fine young man and uh, wanted to be a writer wanted to be a reporter he wanted to. and so we went to uh, up the mountain we had told that he had gone up to look for find those nuns and I got up about I don't know 500 600 feet on a donkey with the American consul from Athens who had been loaned to us. And I looked down from where he obviously had been sitting, and there he was. And so I had found, uh, I was still doing a variety of chores at that time, news, um, a quiz broadcast, I was doing biography at that time. I was doing a bunch of different things. And I, I used to say when asked, you know, the reason that, that I do all of these things is so that I can make money to support the kids. And I had two of my own and two stepchildren at the time. And so I said, you know something, let's make a virtue of this tragic necessity and give up everything that I had been doing to single in until I wanted to go to work, basically. I wanted to go to work for CBS News, but I was 
perfectly content to go to work for wherever. And it became apparent that ABC News wasn't going to hire me, and NBC, I had talked with the president of NBC News, no. Uh, I was asked if I wanted to go to KTLA uh, out in Los Angeles, and I went out there to talk to them, and finally I said, you know, let's, let's see if maybe CBS will not hire me on some kind of a basis, but exclusively for news, and I'd been at CBS. And Dick Salant was the president of CBS News at the time. And uh, he said, well, I tell you what, the salary will be low, and the salary that he offered was about a third or a quarter of what I'd been making. And you'll, you'll, you'll be on a kind, he didn't say it, but you'll be on a kind of probation until we discover what it is that, and so I, I grabbed it in March of 1963. That job was hosting an early version of the CBS Morning News. Five years later, he became co-host with Harry Reasoner of a new show. When 60 Minutes started in 1968, CBS was way ahead of the game in entertainment and everything else. They had money, they had ratings, they had the, a good audience, and they had a remarkable news division. Ed Morrow at Al, Walter Cronkite by that time. And um, so we, we were a lost leader, so to speak. We'll put them on the air. Started out Tuesday nights at 10 o'clock against the NBC Tuesday night movie, and I believe it was Marcus Welby on ABC. So everybody figured we'd get killed, and we did for about the first three, four, five years uh, until we found our character. And then there was the Vietnam War, the Civil Rights Revolution, and then finally the 1973 Yom Kippur War, when suddenly there was no gasoline to drive to Grandma's house on, by this time we had moved to Sunday, on a Sunday afternoon or a Sunday evening, and people began to tune in, and by that time we had our act together. And we had, the, and there was nothing like us, nothing had ever been seen on American television like our broadcast. And it developed a uh, huge following. As I said, we start, went on the air in 68, and by the time, 10 years, the first five years, we found out who we were, and the next five years, we simply built an audience, and we were unbelievably first of all broadcasts on one or two occasions in the 70s, the 80s, and the 90s, uh, because it developed, we were appointment television. People wanted on a Sunday night at 7 o'clock to watch 60 Minutes. Are you as tough in your personal life or in oh, yes. life as you are yeah, on the ab Absolutely. <laughs> are you as tough? I'm obviously a pain in the neck to live with. But that, you know something? No longer. I have become really quite benign. Is that the truth? Yeah, <laughs> it is the truth. Okay. It is. Talk a little bit about your struggle with depression, which has, um, which you have made public. I've, I've, uh, it didn't occur to me. I had done a story about depression on 60 Minutes early on, mm -hmm. and I didn't know anything about it, really, and found out 
about a California fellow who ran the Fluor Corporation and had been a Secretary of Defense or Assistant Secretary of Defense. He had it all, and he talked to me about it and said, suddenly I found myself in a deep depression. What was I depressed about? And Josh Logan was on that. And he, too, had a manic depression. And so we put the piece on the air. And then when I was on trial for my life, effectively, during the Westmoreland trial when he sued CBS and me and a variety of other employees of CBS for $120 million because we told the truth about the story called The Uncounted Enemy of Vietnam Deception. I sat in the, in the uh, cold and drafty federal courtroom in Foley Square in New York for about five months and the, the uh, prosecutor, the plaintiff, the plaintiff puts on his case first in a libel suit and he had sued for 120 million bucks and to be called liar, cheat, fraud, etc. And in a libel case, nothing is barred. Uh, little by little by little, I found myself getting spacey and unable to sleep and unable to eat and I mean, really, what in the dickens is going on? And what happened, obviously, it took me a little time to find out, was that I was in a classical clinical depression. And I mean, it was, it really was a tough one. I was copeless, not just hopeless, but copeless, and tried to keep on working because I was ashamed of acknowledging the fact that I was depressed. You don't use that word. What year are we talking about? 1980, the broadcast was 82, and by the time the trial, it was 84, 84. And um, so I finally got to see a psychiatrist, and he said, Mr. Wallace. I said, yes, Dr. Kaplan. And today, 22, 20 years later, it is still Dr. Kaplan and Mr. Wallace. I see him every six months or so for a lube job, so to speak. And uh, he said, you are suffering from a depression. And we can treat it, etc., etc. And um, so what happened was that he fed me something called Ludiamil. He talked to me. And that's, in my estimation, quite important, that you do psychotherapy along with pharmacological uh, therapy. Uh, he talked to me, and little by little by little, he found out. He didn't really know what it was that I did at that time. Finally, he said to me, you know something, Mr. Wallace? I think, this was after about a month of therapy, what you have to, what you have to do is to get ready, number one, to answer the kind of questions that you like to ask people, because they're going to ask you that on the stand. And then you've got to get ready to lose. Because if you lose, you think your life is gone. Well, we're going to try in this session, these sessions, to get you ready for that. Of course, he was absolutely right. The Ludiamil, what the Ludiamil did was make your hands shake, among other things. It dried you, your mouth, everything. But I could just see myself sitting on the stand five yards from the jury with a 
glass in my hand and my hand shaking and the jury saying, well, any guy whose hand is shaking that way is obviously guilty. In any case, luckily, not luckily, because we were superbly represented and the case was made and he went away. He dropped the, dropped the lawsuit. But um, the stigma, I didn't want to talk about the stigma of depression. And finally one night I was on the Bob Costas show, back when he did Later on television, about 1.30 in the morning, in the middle of it, I suddenly realized, uh, hey, the people who are watching at this time of night are people who can't sleep. So I decided those are the people that I used to be. And that's the first time I began to go public about it. And there's no shame in having a... There's about as much shame as getting scarlet fever or you know, no, there's no shame whatsoever. And it just, it lifted an extraordinary burden. And since that time, I have talked about it fairly openly for the reason that it can be helpful for other people to say, well, look, here's a guy who was at the bottom of the heap, miserable, and look, he's got it back, he's surviving. What are you most proud of looking back? having survived. I mean it. You know, find your way. Find your way. Struggle. Find your way. And hanging in there, being honest with yourself and honest with others and, and finally, finally learning to be kind to other people. One person who Mike Wallace learned much about life from as the years went on was his dear friend, Art Buchwald, as I said at the outset of this podcast. Art Buchwald's gravestone at the West Chop Cemetery is even more succinct than his confidants, other than Buchwald's name and the dates of his life, 1925 to 2007, there is no inscription, only an engraving of a manual typewriter loaded with a blank sheet of paper ready to go. Buchwald was, for decades, the most widely read political satirist in America. His column in the Washington Post was syndicated to over 500 other papers. He won a Pulitzer in 1982. He mostly used his comic powers to skewer the rich and the powerful, regardless of their political leanings. But he could also be self-deprecating, and he opened up about his bouts of depression around the same time his other blues brothers did. As Buchwald told Gail Eichenthal in 1994, the roots of his struggles and the roots of his humor ran deep and were intertwined. When I was born, my mother apparently was mentally ill. We didn't know that. I didn't know that until later. And so they took her away from me, and... uh, she was put in instit- a series of sanitariums and then an institution. I was put in a uh, seven-day Adventist home because I was sick and these people were able to take care of me. And then I was six years old, I was put in a Hebrew orphan asylum and then in a series of foster homes. My mother, I never saw. 35 years she was there and I never saw 
people find this strange, but what happened was I couldn't see her when I was a child. They didn't want me to. And when I grew up, I didn't want to see her because I had a terrible fear that she wouldn't know who I was. So I lived this lie, or whatever it was, because I kept telling everyone she died. Uh, from there, uh, at a very early age, like seven or eight years old, I was a kind of a lost kid, and I discovered that I had the ability to make kids laugh. So I became the class clown, and I made uh, the, the classroom laugh. I made fun of the teacher, made fun of the snobbish kids in the class, and I found that this was a marvelous way of acceptance. And uh, the kids liked me because I could make them laugh. And I said, hey, this is good. So I made them laugh in grammar school. I made them laugh in high school. And then I went to the Marine Corps, and it's not that good in the Marine Corps when you try to make kids laugh. A note about Art Buchwald's service in the Corps. He was still in high school when he decided to join and wasn't actually old enough to serve without getting the signature of a parent. So he literally walked down to Skid Row, found an older drunk man, and gave him a pint of Southern comfort in exchange for playing the part of his father. After the war, where he'd cleaned guns and edited the Squadron newsletter, he applied to USC under the GI Bill, but he neglected to tell them he had dropped out of high school. When they found out, they let him stay, but wouldn't give him a degree. No matter, he'd become managing editor of the Campus Humor magazine. So when he decided to move to Paris, following in the steps of other American expatriate writers, he was able to find work, earning $25 a week. I got a job in the Herald Tribune, and the form of my column was humor. And it's been that way ever since. Taking a situation, any situation, and making fun of it. For example, we talked on the panel about guns. It turns out that more people get killed by guns now than automobiles. So I suggested they put airbags on guns. And uh, that's my way of dealing with a situation. I love the way the New York Times described Buchwald's humor in their obituary forum. Quote, he delighted in stirring the pot, never maliciously, always vigorously. If you were to read all of Art Buchwald's columns in a row, you'd have a pretty good picture of American history during the second half of the 20th century and a little beyond. And you'd be smiling, too, at the absurdity of much of it. Buchwald often wrote imaginary conversations or ridiculous parables to explain news events, like when the Enron financial scandal unfolded. And in his column, he talked about going to the bank for a $4,000 loan to buy a used Honda. I'll read just a few lines to give you a taste. It starts with the loan officer. Now, the first thing you must do is create a dummy corporation in the Cayman Islands. What for? So people will think your Honda is there when in fact it will be in your garage. Now, you list your car in the books as an asset. Then you borrow $4,000 from the bank across the street. I get it. I use that loan to pay you back. You clear your books, and I owe the bank across the street instead. Hmm, because you paid us back so quickly, your credit rating will soar. You can then go to another bank across town and borrow $10,000. His column escalated from there, getting more and more ridiculous, exposing more and more about the machinations of the banks. 
When Watergate broke, it was Art Buchwald who coined the term Saturday Night Massacre to describe what happened the day two top Justice Department officials resigned after President Nixon ordered them to fire the special prosecutor. Many Washington insiders first learned about it while they were attending Art Buchwald's 48th birthday party. Buchwald moved in those circles, but he always remained outsider enough to observe and to reveal. Did you always know you wanted to write? Yes. You know, I, I like to write, and what, what, what you need in this world is one person to believe in you. Because when you're young and write, if that one person doesn't believe in you, nobody else is going to read it. So I had a teacher. She was a wonderful teacher named Mrs. Agorkin. And she found, it was an interesting thing what happened with her because at the beginning, I, we had show and tell, and I got up and I recited a poem I read, The Lone Cowboy with a pack on my back and a pack, and a snack in my pack, I'll roam the lone prairie. I'll spare you the rest. And after I finished it, it was a fairly good poem for a 12-year-old kid. She made the mistake of accusing me of not writing it, that she thought somebody I had stolen it. I can't tell how hurt I was. I really was crushed. And I didn't say anything, and I bit my lip, and I just, I was so down. And then about three days later, she discovered that she had made a mistake. So she apologized in front of the whole class and gave me credit for that poem. And we became good friends. And uh, I was writing for her. I wasn't writing for the world, and I was writing for Mrs. Egorkin, and I wanted her to like it. And she saw beneath this wild exterior of a kid who never buttoned his shirt right, and had, you know, it was just a mess that there was there was somebody there that she should put her energy into. So I really hope that any young person really finds somebody else, that one person that will inspire him and it will make them feel it's all worthwhile. Because none of us have large audiences at the beginning. And so we need all the audiences we can get. And I've always been, since I'm in the humor business, I've always been very um, puzzled by the fact that parents don't like their kids to be funny. Not all parents. But you get a kid at the table and he's wisecracking. Shut up, you're going to get in trouble. You're going to go to jail. You say that once more. And here's this kid who's got this life, this, this energy, this verve. And many parents, not all of them, but many parents put them down because they don't want their kids to be different. They don't want them to be rebels. They don't want them to, because the world is not too kind to people who are rebels. So, so, so be a lawnmower. As long as, you're, as, long as you, you mow the lawn, uh, that's what your parents want from you. And those of us who have done more than that, we did it because we didn't march to the same drummer as anybody else. The people who count in this world are the ones with new ideas and the people who are willing to take risks to get those new ideas. You said that you always wanted to write. Um, were there particular books that you read uh, as a young person that, that really turned you on? Well, I used to like Damon Runyon, I liked Ringwald, and I liked Jim Thurb, I liked Bob Bensley. Then I stopped reading all of them because every one of those writers thought of the idea before I did. And if, I, if, I, if I'm about to write something and I say, oh, oh, Bob Benchley did that, I don't write it. 
So I stopped reading all the humorous. It seemed to be a very steady uh, track for you, you know, to editor of a, uh, you were editor of a campus newspaper, yeah. I guess, and, and uh, yeah. Paris experience. And um, what, was there a moment uh, that was particularly exciting in your career that, where you really felt like, wow, I, you know, that was great, I did it? No, the greatest moment of my life was to get a job on the Paris Herald Tribune. That is the greatest paper in the world for me. It's published all over the world now. It used to be published in Europe. And for a kid like me to be on the Paris Herald Tribune, it was a dream come true. But I had a very laissez-faire attitude towards uh, what I was doing. I went over to Paris on the GI Bill. And I'd sit at a sidewalk cafe and they'd say, what are you doing? I'd say, I'm writing a book. And that was a lie. But at a sidewalk cafe, everybody accepted somebody was writing a book. And so I never thought to myself, uh, I had dreams of glory, but they were different than most people because money didn't enter into it. The dreams of glory was to be famous and to uh, everybody to know who I was. Walk down the street and people say, hey, guess who just went by? And, and f happily, that's going on now. And I had to be very honest and say, I enjoy it. I enjoy it very much. And uh, it's, it's been a wonderful life because if you write humor, people tend to like you. If I'm writing serious stuff, if I'm a Russ Limbo, if I was one of those people, uh, half the people might like it, less than half. But I don't seem to have people who dislike me. I have a lot of people who don't know who I am, but on the whole, the people who know me and read me like me. And that's what I've been going for. That's nice. Don't you have to take a lot of risks, though, that you're going to offend somebody? Because you're awfully irreverent. Well, it's a trick to do it in such a way that even the person that you're making fun of laughs. And I've been doing this for 44 years now, and I don't have too many people who got mad at me because I was making fun of them. And also there's something that goes on in this country, which a, a senator once told me, Senator Paul Douglas, he said, every generation has five or six people that the American people give a license to and say, okay, you can make fun of us, but not him. And I, he told me I had one of the licenses, and I believe that's true. It's quite an honor. Well, I don't know if it's an honor or not, but it makes life easier. And I find that uh, you can do some good. You can do some good. What advice would you give to a young person who wants to write? Write for somebody. Don't just write for the hell of writing. Write for your mother, write for your father, write for your girlfriend, write for your boyfriend. That's what writing's about, is inspired by somebody. Even when I write today, I think of that one person who's gonna read it and how much pleasure I'm getting out of the fact that that person will get pleasure out of it. So the inspiration is very important. Find somebody who really has faith in you and don't give up because the people who give up, you know, they're gonna become lawnmowers. <laughs> That's Art Bookwald, and before him, Mike Wallace, talking to Gail Eichenthal for the Academy of Achievement. I'm Alice Winkler, and this is What It Takes.
What It Takes is generously funded by the Catherine B. Reynolds Foundation. Our thanks to them, and our thanks to you for listening. See you next time.